Welcome back to the Inside Story with RLLC. Today, we will be talking to Vivian Siskin about stuttering. Hi, Vivian. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Really excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Amazing. I just want to start off with having you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm Vivian Siskin, and I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Hearing and Speech Sciences at the University of Maryland. And I also own the Siskin Stuttering Center in McLean, Virginia. And all we do is stuttering. Um, so we specialize in stuttering. We also specialize in some coexisting conditions that occur with stuttering, um, particularly those in the on the autism spectrum. And um, those are my two areas of clinical interest, autism and stuttering. So I like to combine them together. And we've recently started a YouTube channel called Open Stuttering, which is um, designed to help the public understand the value of being open um, with stuttering. And it and features interviews with a lot of um, clients who are on their journey toward becoming more open. Oh, that's awesome. So you mentioned the YouTube channel, and you mentioned that you have a practice here in McLean. Mm-hmm. So if so, if listeners were looking for you like online, they would find you. What's the YouTube channel called? Um, Open Stutter is the YouTube channel, but our practice is called Siskin Stuttering Center. Amazing. So I will link the website and the YouTube channel in the description box for all the listeners. And if there's anything else, please let me know and I'll add okay, it. Okay, great. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Well, let's just hop right into the interview if you're ready. Sure. Awesome. First question for you, so we get a really good baseline, is just what is stuttering and how is it diagnosed? Yeah, I'm glad we started out with that one. And I'll tell you why. Because there was a time where we always said we don't know what causes stuttering. And that was an okay response. And as we've learned more about the science behind stuttering, particularly what we've learned from neuroimaging studies, genetic studies, and language motor um, studies, we know quite a bit about what stuttering is. And so I'll start out by saying it's neurodevelopmental. And what that means is that it's neurological, not learned. Um, The way the form of stuttering is learned, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in a minute, but the basis for stuttering, the cause of stuttering is neurological. And it's also genetic. And neurodevelopmental means it starts in early childhood. And it changes over time, but there is an onset to stuttering. So I'll clarify that a little bit. So when I talk about neurological, what is neurological? We know that on the left side of the brain, there are um, areas of the brain that connect and the fibers, the connectivity is not as robust between the areas that deal with uh, with speaking and listening. And so we, uh, we also look at the idea that it affects the motor planning and the speech production areas of the brain. So we have seen this through lots and lots and lots of um, neuroimaging studies. And for a while, people thought that, okay, maybe the brains of people who stutter change over time because they react to stuttering. But they have been able to get very young children as ages three and four inside the fMRI machines to take these imaging studies and see that these changes exist near onset as well. Wow. Yeah. And in terms of genetics, we know that 60 to 70% of stuttering is genetics. We know that if you have, if you stutter, you are three times more likely to have a first degree family member who stutters. Wow. 
So it's genetically. Um, a lot of people say, I don't know where this comes from. I guess I got, I, I stutter because I'm nervous. And then you find out the father stutters, the grandfather stutters, <laughs> the uncle stutters, my brother stutters. Um, it's not a coincidence. Right. It, it's genetic. Um, yeah, so we know, and, and we, it, it, it changes over time. So we know the onset is anywhere between two and four years of age. Okay. Um, in terms of what stuttering is, um, we, were jo- we were talking a little bit beforehand of what is disfluency and what is stuttering. So I'm going to clarify some of those things for people listening. So when I talk about disfluency, I'm going to be talking about breaks in the fluency of speech. It could be a repetition, it could be a prolongation, it could be an interjection of a sound, but anything that interferes with the forward flow of speech. Stuttering is a specific difference diagnosis, and it's something that is noted with specific symptoms. So at onset, close to onset, anywhere between two and four for most children, there's later onsets as well, not unusual, but for most children who start to stutter between the age of two and four, we have to do differential diagnosis to make sure that this is stuttering. So if it's not stuttering, what could it be? Okay. <laughs> okay. It can be a period of typical disfluency that many children pass through. And I call that developmental disfluency. We don't need to label it stuttering because many children pass through this period of developmental disfluency as they're learning language and their systems are growing and developing. Many parents will say they're thinking faster than they can talk or whatever it might be. But you won't see a lot of struggle in these children. You hear mostly repetitions of part words and whole words, mostly repetition. It also could be what we call language-based disfluency or language-based stuttering. And that's not necessarily stuttering as we know it, but it's high-frequency disfluency that comes from imbalances in the language system. So, for example, an imbalance might be that vocabulary is very, very strong in the young child, but language formulation, expressive grammar, those kinds of things could be at the average level. There doesn't have to be a deficit. Right. Okay. So just an imbalance in some of those things. Or expressive language may be trailing receptive language a little bit. But both could be above average. And in many of our clients who stutter, they're very high, but there is an imbalance. So we have an ambitious speaker trying to communicate with a linguistic system that is average, which is great, but it's it's average. Something else it might be um, could be what we call atypical disfluency. And one form of atypical disfluency is where we hear the end of the word repeated, eated, eated. So it sounds, sounds a bit like this is, where the ending of the word erd, erd, erd is repeated. And that's not the same as stuttering or any of those other types of disfluencies. And we're finding that the treatment for that particular kind of disfluency is very specialized. And then finally, I'll, I'll do one more before I get to the other one. We can have an acquired stuttering for older children. Okay. So children or adults can acquire stuttering because of accident or injury or some kind of medical condition. And those are very, very different and again, treated differently. And then we have stuttering. 
Okay. So stuttering is just one of many, many different kinds of disfluencies that we look at at onset. And the speech language pathologist who specializes in stuttering is busy doing that differential diagnosis near onset. Stuttering is diagnosed when we have tension and timing issues related to the disfluency. So we often see what we call dysrhythmic phonation. And that means there'll be either tension, ah, 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 ah. You'll hear that in the voice, the tension in the voice, where you have any prolongations or pitch rises. You might have repetition that goes on for multiple iterations, like we, 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 up to eight or 10. Typical disfluency is one or two. And so we have high numbers of iteration and we have tension and timing issues. For example, a silent block. My name is Vivian. I put a little sound in there so listeners knew that I was stuck. <laughs> okay. Right. When you have a silent block, that is an example of tension that would not be present in typical disfluency that normal kids pass through. Right. Typical kids pass through. Wow. I didn't realize there were so many different levels of disfluency and different levels of different kinds of stuttering per se. Yeah. Yeah, no, and the reason why that's so valuable is because our treatment plans must reflect the kinds of disfluencies that we're seeing in the children. And if we match our treatment to our diagnosis, we're we're always in good shape. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. So remind me, did we talk about how we diagnose? Yeah, so the diagnosis is often, very often, speech pathologists look at frequency, how okay. how many times a child stutters, more than 2%, more than 3%. And there are a lot of norms related to frequency of stuttering. But those of us who specialize in stuttering know that frequency is not very important. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because it's not the frequency, it's the quality of the disfluency that we're looking at more. Right. Certainly, we're not ignoring frequency and high frequency gives us some information particularly related to the new research in uh, in spontaneous recovery, in persistence and recovery. And I'll talk about that in in a minute. But we're looking at the quality. So we're looking at the types of disfluencies, whether they're prolongations, dysrhythmic phonation, blocks, prolongations, broken words. And we're also looking at the number of iterations. We're also looking at tension and timing issues related to that disfluency. And We're also looking to reactivity, the child's own reactivity to that, which may look like what we call a secondary behavior. And that means the child's reactivity to getting stuck has them do something that's not part of typical talking. So for example, I'll I'll do one right now. Um, Since people can't see me, I won't do a physical one, but I'll do a (laughs) linguistic one. So I say, my name is uh, Vivian, that uh, inserted right there distracts me enough to get through the the disfluency so that uh becomes a secondary behavior and that in this case it's a linguistic escape behavior but very often we'll see children who lose eye contact or they'll scrunch up their face or they'll use hand and foot moment movements to get the word out or they'll jerk their head Um, but they can be physical they can be linguistic and they can also be attitudinal, oh. believe it or not, Attitude, pretending that you don't hear, 
pretending to use a funny voice, pretending to be the class clown, pretending to take on a foreign accent. These kinds of things the kids learn early on that they end up um, distracting and also fluency enhancing so they can um, hide their stuttering, which is one of the problems in stuttering right. as they grow older. Yeah. How interesting. So now that we have kind of an understanding of what stuttering is and, you know, compared to disfluency, we got the difference there. What are some common misconceptions about stuttering? Yeah, and the misconceptions are very, very important because it's the crux of life impact. So misconceptions, um, we see them in every day. All the microaggressions against people who stutter are related to these misconceptions. Um, oh, what's the matter? Did you forget your name? Um, teasing, um, mimicking. And it comes from the idea that people think that they have a choice, that it comes from nervousness or anxiety or insecurity or lack of confidence or childhood trauma or poor parenting. And all of those are completely myths. They're not related to the actual cause of stuttering. A lot of parents can't they, they want to know why um, stuttering starts at a certain point in their child's life. And so we often refer to triggers versus causes. So, for example, a child who is genetically and neurologically predisposed to stuttering may not have an onset for stuttering to an onset to stuttering until something triggers it. Um, an illness, uh, a parent's vacation, toilet training, um, taking away the pacifier, <laughs> going to preschool, right. second child was born, all of these things that I hear all the time that the parents attribute to cause, but those are really triggers that have triggered the stuttering that's already predisposed. An example would be like asthma, where um, certainly pollen doesn't cause asthma, but pollen can trigger asthma. Right. Same with an upper respiratory infection. It doesn't cause asthma. And that's the same thing. There are triggers and there are causes. Wow. How interesting. I never would, I never would have realized that. Because <laughs> I think yeah. most parents would say, well, I like this was, you see, it's cause and effect as you yeah. see it. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you don't think trigger and effect. <laughs> no, of course not. And you want to find something, you know, when you see your child struggling, you want to find something to see the connection, you're trying to find that. And so it, this is a very, very typical response for parents to try to find the connection. Right. But the reason why these misconceptions are so important to us as speech language pathologists is because the stigma related to stuttering in our society is actually the reason why children and adults, people of all ages who stutter, try to hide it. Right not only to hide the actual stuttering behavior, but try to hide their identity as a person who stutters. It's stigmatized. It's actually an invisible stigmatized identity. And by hiding and concealing and masking, it leads to a lot of the life impact that people who stutter have as they grow older in elementary school, high school, and beyond. Um, trying to keep up that masquerade that they are not a person who stutters. And the hiding um, and the lack of confidence, uh, negative self-esteem, anxiety and dread that come with it are part of the stuttering experience for many people. Right. Do you have any advice to, especially the younger folks who realize that they have a stutter or any kind of disfluency that they um, 
like that can help them as they're going through school, especially with the teasing and things of that nature? Yeah, I mean, what we know about most things that kids are teased about, the more open you are and dispel some of that power um, related to the teasing um, is very important. And in speech therapy for children who stutter for the young ones, that is giving them self-advocacy skills, giving them something to say to the perpetrator um, allows them to have that self-advocacy and stand up from themselves. Um, certainly want to help parents and teachers help advocate for the child as well. But we find it very, very successful when somebody says, why do you talk that way? And they're able to say, because I have bumpy speech and, uh, and that's how I was born with a pleasant look on their face. And usually the response they get from the other kid is, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, once it's understood it's, it, it's, it becomes less something to be teased about. We have a lot of children actually giving class presentations on their stuttering. Oh, wow. Very young children answering questions about it, talking about it. We have, we have a, a video of this kid. All the kids are sitting on these little carpet squares, and he's got a, a chart up there with sticky notes talking about oh. his bumpy speech and when it gets worse and when it gets better and how the kids can help. And they're all raising their hands and asking questions. It's adorable. Wow. Yeah. That is a fantastic idea. I, I never would have thought about that either, but that is such a great way for everyone to then just be educated on something that may be happening to more kids than just that one kid in the class. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Especially for so many kids, because stuttering is what we call an invisible disability, if you want to call it dis disability, there's some controversy there. But being invisible and only coming out some of the time, the variability of stuttering, it's the nature of stuttering. People are saying, I want you to know that my stuttering is variable, doesn't happen all the time, it's not there all the time. Well, that's the nature of stuttering. And so when something isn't always there, it surprises people. Right. And that's why it's important for other kids to understand that every once in a while you'll see me struggle, but then um, you'll don't be so confused when I can be completely fluent. It's right. very often not my choice. Right. Well, now that we've talked about other kids understanding stuttering and understanding that they might see something or hear something and how to understand it. Can you talk a little bit about what happens if parents notice that their child is disfluent and how they can support them at home? Yeah. So that's probably the biggest question that I get when I do initial consults with parents. What can we do to help at home? Because parents want the same thing for their kids. They want them to be happy and to be successful and to have friends. And um, they don't want to be struggling with something that is going to impact their life as they grow um, and they enter school. Um, the first thing that we like to talk about when we give a, when we give advice to parents is messaging, because messaging is the biggest concern. So what we find is parents are either giving too much information <laughs> or they're ignoring it completely. Right. So too much information would be advice because when they see their child struggling, they're trying to give them advice for them to stop struggling. So if it looks like they're gasping for air, they'll tell them to take a deep breath, which is bad advice because it actually leads to more struggle. Oh. Um, and if you see, for example, if you see a child who is inhaling while they're stuttering, it's an inhalation pattern, 
typical speeches on exhalation, it's because they're trying to take deep, these deep breaths that um, parents have advised, or they're trying to do what we call an easy onset, which is a speech strategy that they've learned from some of their speech pathologists, which requires a full breath before they begin. And that could actually make their stuttering pattern more struggled. Um, so they're either giving them too much advice or they're ignoring it because they were told by their pediatrician, shh, don't say anything. Oh. If you talk about it, it'll make it worse. So there's this conspiracy of silence around stuttering in the early years, which leads children to think that stuttering is actually worse than it is. Oh. Because if mom and dad won't talk about it, it must be really, really bad. And here right. I am struggling. Excuse me. Uh, nobody's saying anything and I'm struggling. It would almost be like the child fell and skimmed his or her, her knee. Mm -hmm. And the parents are just saying, shh, ignore <laughs> <laughs> No. Not the right answer. Yeah. What parents should do is acknowledge. Acknowledgement is very important. And that could be anything from, you know what? That was a little tight or that was a little bumpy, but you said everything you wanted to say. Your story was so funny and everything you have to say is important. So keep on talking. Encouragement that stuttering shouldn't stop their kids from communicating. And that's the important message. So not to be um, into that conspiracy of silence. Um you know, I have to defend the pediatricians for just a moment because they do get it right in that many children will resolve on their own, grow out of it. But what they miss is that this usually happens within a year of onset, not three years down the line. So we have a lot of children who come to me um, and their parents say, well, the pediatrician said it will go away. But that was like four years ago. Oh. It's not, you know, it's and, and the kids are still waiting for it to go away. My pediatrician yeah. said it will go away, and that's not really how it how it works. Um, I think parents can also be focusing on what their child is saying and not how they're saying it. And so listening to the content of their speech and not to the quality of their stuttering. So very often we have parents who will be listening there and stuttering occurs more when there's a lot of excitement. The child is very excited or under time pressure or has an, or is emotional um, or has a lot to say that's complex it's because complex speech often also increases disfluency. And so the child is excited to say something very enthusiastic and is struggling. And the parents, they choose that moment to say, use your tools from therapy. And what they're doing is they're saying, your being fluent right now is more important to me than what you're saying. Ah. And so I have a seminar that I, I give for parents and it's called use your tools and other ineffective nagging. It's really not, <laughs> not a good thing to say, use your tools. Speech practice that is given out by speech language pathologists should be done during planned times when the child is on board, when they're going to be practicing, okay. not when the child is coming to you with the most exciting thing they want to say. Right. So listen to what they're saying and not how they're saying it. And most importantly, what parents can do is to know what to praise because they often praise something that the child has no control over. And if you praise something the child has no control over, the child can't repeat it. So saying, good job, that was so fluent is the same as saying, good job, brown hair. You know, it, 
it they have they can't create the fluency right and so what to praise so i think the parents can praise things like courage in the face of fear saying all you want to say when you want to say it stretching your comfort zone speaking up for yourself joining the club ordering your own food giving your oral report all of the things that you can praise somebody for related to communication but please don't praise fluency because it's not a choice right yeah wow 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 that is i think enlightening because we often just praise the things that work right in our traditional way of thinking of this worked or it didn't mm -hmm. so I think that is fantastic advice to take away from here, to know that obviously praise the hard work that has been done, not just the end result. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So speaking on oral reports and things of that nature, <laughs> can you talk about the school age child? How does stuttering impact social and also academic performance? Yeah, so as the child grows um, and develops, I was uh, I mentioned a little bit before about that 80% of the children, I'm not sure if I mentioned, but 60 to 80% of the children who develop stuttering will have a spontaneous remission. They will grow out of it, so to speak, without any intervention. And that's wow. a very, very high number. Yeah. So we're looking at only 20% of the children who begin to stutter that are persisting later in life into the school age years. And some of the things that might determine persistence and recovery include things like family history of stuttering. We're knowing now the new research is pointing to a little bit about temperament, um, hmm. genetic kinds of temperament, reactivity, things like being able to self-calm, um, self-regulation, those kinds of things, right. executive functioning, those kinds of things. And certainly um, sex, so males will persist more than females. We know that at onset, it's about two to one, male to female. And later in life, it's more like four or five to one, wow. males to female. So more girls are growing out of it than boys. Um, but without going into all of the reasons for those things right now, we want to just say that as they grow older, the children who persist will be dealing with stuttering in a very, very different way. And they develop what we call a stuttering pattern or profile that's very different from onset. So in onset, you see it all, you see what you get. But as they grow older, they begin to develop covert patterns. Um, some of the children will develop escape and avoidance behaviors that allow them to hide stuttering, and others will have a more overt pattern. But how overt or covert the school-age child is has nothing to do with the severity of the problem. And that's, I think, where a lot of speech-language pathologists miss out. They see more physical struggle, and they call it a severe disorder of stuttering. But in effect, somebody who doesn't show much at all, but has a lot of anxiety related to stuttering, goes out of their way to avoid every interaction, is absent from school the day of the report, doesn't show up the first day to avoid introductions, um, pretends to be, pretends not to even know the answer to something when called upon. Right. That could make it a more severe kind of dis disorder, if you want to call stuttering a disorder, that's kind of controversial right now, um, than not. So the pattern is very different in children in the school age years. So as we assess a school age child, 
we're looking for these relative components of their stuttering profile. We're looking at how much, certainly how much physical struggle they have, how much avoidance behavior they have. Mm -hmm. But we're also looking at emotionality, how much shame, embarrassment, and frustration Mm -hmm. they might have, and also how much effort we put into what we call mental gymnastics. How much of the day are they actually putting into ways that they can hide their stuttering, ways that they don't have to talk in school, how they're going to get somebody else to talk for them, worrying about having to be in that group presentation and maybe they can volunteer for the research and somebody else will do the oral presentation. There's a lot of bargaining that's going on in their head and it's exhausting. And some children will say that from the moment they wake up to the moment that they go to bed, they're thinking about ways to hide their stuttering. So this is huge impact educationally and socially for a lot of children, and it varies. You'll have some children who stutter who have very, very little life impact along those lines. They just stutter away. They answer their questions. They don't really care, feeling great about themselves, and others who are painfully self-conscious about showing stuttering and everything in between. So... When we qualify children for services, let's say in the public schools, and we have to look at this thing that we call adverse educational impact, very often the speech-language therapist will be looking at their grades, is it affecting grades? Or they'll look at, is it affecting friendships, social interaction? But there's much, much more. Because a lot of children will have friends and good grades, but they are struggling, struggling emotionally with stuttering, struggling with the fear of speaking all day long, struggling by not participating in extracurricular activities and those kinds of things. So we have to look at the individual profile and design treatment that's very much um, oriented toward that individual profile. And we have to find goals for our therapy that are not only meaningful, but functional. So working on fluency for fluency's sake is often not the way to go. And a lot of people will say to me, well, the parents want the child to work on fluency and the kid wants to be fluent. I had one little kid who said to me, my birthday's coming up and I want to be, I want to get, I want my stuttering to be fixed by my birthday. That's where they... (laughs) little five-year-old or six, I forgot, he was a little guy. And what I said to him after that was, instead of that being a clue that we need to work on fluency for that child or for that parent who wants fluency, I said to him, and if your birthday wish comes true and you're fluent by your birthday, what will be different for you? And he said, I would talk to everybody and I would tell jokes And no one would talk over me and interrupt me. Well, he's telling you his goals right there. Yeah. It's not about fluency. It's about those goals. And same with the parent. When the parent says, I want my child to be fluent, I usually say, what will that mean for you? And the parent will say, well, I want him to have friends. I want him to be confident. I want him to be a leader. I want him to be free to say all that he wants to say. I go, well, there are your goals right there. Yeah. So my message is very much to go toward what will be different communicatively and not work on fluency for fluency's sake. 
Because right, fluency right. is a fair weather friend. It's never there when you need it and always there when you don't. Right. Wow. Do you find that through the approach that you have where you're mainly working on those goals as opposed to just simply fluency, do you find that that provides a better outcome for most of who you're seeing? Yes. It depends on what you mean by better, but long-term outcome, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, just more confidence. Um, and do you find that they're mainly achieving those goals? If you focus on fluency, do you find that those goals aren't getting achieved as much, well, I guess, is the question? It's a great question. Um, I would say that, and I think most speech pathologists would agree with me, um, that they can achieve fluency in the therapy room very easily. That's not very difficult to do. Anything that's new and different and unique and novel will create fluency. And the children will do it in your office with you. The reason it does not generalize, and that's why the children are not doing it at home, is because they don't like the way they sound. Mm -hmm. They don't want to sound robotic, and they don't want to um, do techniques as they talk. They want to talk spontaneously. Right. And so work in stuttering that focuses on comfort and communication, confidence and communication, and spontaneity above fluency is long-lasting. Right. Because those are the things that allow the person to be who they are. You can't be who you are if you're trying to talk in a way that's robotic or different for the sake of fluency. And who wants that goal? Is it the speech pathologist? Is it the parent? Is it society? Right. The child wants freedom to speak spontaneously. Exactly. Be understood and have comfort in their speech. If they're bumpy here and there and it doesn't interfere with communication, that's a beautiful way to be speaking. And today, honestly, it follows along with the pride movement in stuttering because it's very much now seen as a form of neurodiversity. Um, and we're valuing people who have different levels of disfluency in their speech. And not only one kind of talking is an acceptable kind of talking. That's awesome. Wow. So I, I started asking kind of about um, treatment, treatment mm-hmm. approaches. Yeah, yeah So yeah. We, we touched on that, but is there, what are some of like the other common? Yeah, so I'll, there's a range of treatment approaches today. Um, and it ranges anywhere between fixing fluency, in other words, strict behavioral approaches to reinforce fluency and to eliminate stuttering, um, all the way to acceptance-based therapies. And even further to the under, other end of the, um, of the spectrum would be no therapy for people who are very much into the pride movement and believe that n- n- you shouldn't be doing anything to change right. the person who stutters. I don't agree with that personally because I think that um, to allow the child to stay with the vestiges of escape behaviors that they've learned to hide stuttering doesn't do them any good. Right. Um, why should you stay with something that you learned when you wanted to hide it when you no longer <laughs> want to hide it? Yeah. Why not get rid of those things? So for some of the therapies, um, the clinician is helping the child to learn new ways of talking. And when you learn a new way of talking, either by slowing your speech or stretching out certain sounds or approaching a word in a certain way, you're suppressing the moment of stuttering. And this is applied to all of speech. 
So it sounds more like this when the person is talking. And many of my clients can be perfectly fluent when they do this. But they don't want they don't want to. They don't want to. No. no. <laughs> I mean I say, show it to me. Sure, I'll show it to you, but that's not who I am. Right. So it doesn't generalize and it works for a while and then stops working. And so there's this notion out there that stuttering therapy is very temporary because people get this fluency quickly, but they don't practice it and they go back to their old habits. Hmm. Another form of therapy is where you're taking the actual moment of disfluency and you're changing it to be, let's say, more comfortable or forward moving. We call that stuttering modification. And um, there are many people who benefit from this type of therapy um, and many who do not because being able to do a modification in the moment of stuttering is like asking somebody to stop, think, change while you're in a moment of loss of control because the moment of disfluency is complete loss of control for the person who stutters. Right. And something that, again, that you're able to do in the therapy room you cannot necessarily do it in real life. Mm -hmm. So again, lots and lots of trouble with generalization. And that's when parents are telling their kids, they're struggling, use your tools, use your tools. (laughs) Um, No, I'm out of control. I don't remember to use it until after I'm done. Nobody can remember to do it right before. It's just too much to ask children. I don't think even adults can do it. And then there are acceptance-based therapies where, um, for example, the kind of therapy that I do, of course, I'm biased. I'm, I have to, you know, I can't help it, but I'm <laughs> biased. Yeah. Um, avoid introduction therapy, where we're helping the children eliminate the things that they learned to hide stuttering, which account for their struggle. And what we're doing at that point is we're working on efficiency and comfort by removing vestiges of old habits designed to hide and allowing them to be open about their stuttering. And then once they're open about their stuttering, reduce reactivity to that openness so that they can, their bodies can settle down into a pretty easy form of disfluency that occurs when their neurological system requires it, but they're confident, spontaneous, and joyful communicators. Wow. I understand why you're biased. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... That sounds great. At least I'm honest about it. At least I'm honest about <laughs> right. it. Yeah. But I mean, I, if I were to suddenly become an SLP who was, you know, working on my working with clients who stutter, that is exactly what I would do. I I, I agree with you. Essentially, yeah. Well, it saying. makes a lot of sense. One of my associates, when he first learned about it, um, he he stutters as well. He said, you know. It's so simple, but it's hard at the same time because something so simple is almost too simple. Just mm-hmm. get rid of the things that you're doing to hide stuttering. Yeah. It's just too simple. Wow, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mentioned SLPs. So mm-hmm. what advice might you give to speech therapists who work with children who stutter? Yeah. Okay. The first one is to assess beyond frequency. It's very important to do what we call a multidimensional assessment. So that means to look beyond the frequency of stuttering. I don't even look at it at all, but if you must, go ahead. But look at other things as well. 
So you want to look at the socio-emotional profile. You want to look at language. You want to look at a lot of things that are influencing that. Um, you want to, um, I'll do a little demo that I like to give just to show you how unimportant frequency is. And maybe there'll be some SLPs listening who might But right now, I'll do a lot of disfluency in my speech. And you'll hear some repetitions in my speech. And if you were actually counting up all the disfluencies in my speech right now, I would have a severe disorder of stuttering according to the SSI for because I've got lots of disfluency in my speech, lots and lots of disfluency. However, I'm also pretty confident. I'm not I'm spontaneous. I'm enjoying my communication. Yeah, I have a lot of disfluency in my speech. This is a severe disorder of stuttering. Now, I'm not going to show any disfluency at all. I'm going to be completely fluent as I can be fluent as a person who does not stutter. But when I get to one moment of... What... uh, um, one moment of, sorry, disfluency, and that's the only moment of disfluency I have in my entire conversation, my SSI-4 that measures frequency would not have me stuttering at all. It would be one moment of stuttering. And so frequency is so, it has so little importance compared to quality of communication. And you saw that one moment of disfluency was filled with struggle. Mm -hmm. Um, That was a showstopper. Yet all the other disfluency was not. Right. So that's the, that would be my number one measure, important thing to say to SLPs is don't get caught up in frequency. It's, it's really not as important. Um, The other thing that um, I would really want to talk about is the goals that they're that they're using in their therapy because even though many SLPs have a really good understanding of, of, of the multidimensional profile of stuttering, they're giving out what I call double messages in their therapy. And let me give an example of the double message. And if they can figure out the double message, I don't think the kids can either or the parents, but they'll say, um, yeah, um, it's okay to stutter. I love that. It's okay to stutter. Um, And yeah, there's a whole bunch of famous people who stutter. Let's look at them on the internet because look at Joe Biden stutters and Carly Simon stutters and um, um, this actor, this baseball player, this singer, all these famous people who stutter. And let's learn about that to build up their confidence. And then they turn around and go, and when we're finished with that, we're going to work on these fluency targets. And so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you either tell them it's okay to stutter or you don't. So reduce this, the double messages and get the, get the right kinds of goals into your treatment plan. Um, I'm called in to do a lot of consultations on treatment plans for stuttering. And even though the speech pathologist has a broad understanding of the stuttering um, of the condition of stuttering and the light lived experience of stuttering, they still only have one goal or two goals on their progress on their plan. One is to reduce frequency and two is to reduce secondary behaviors. And what happened to self-advocacy? Right. What happened to comfort? What happened to community? 
um, there's so much more that can be done. And so I would think more broadly about the kinds of goals. And the last thing I would advise, and this is the most important thing, is that we know that the best outcomes are achieved when our clients and their families are have a sense of community. And so get them involved in organizations related to stuttering, National Stuttering Association, Friends Who Stutter, say these are organizations where they can meet other kids who stutter, families can meet other families with children who stutter. And we know that meeting others who stutter actually um, has is probably one of the, if, if I had to look at my group therapy, one of the most important ingredients in success in group therapy, I find, is the sense of community and support. Wow. And that's very, very important for reduction of stigma, for self-esteem, and for motivation for change. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That would be the advice I would give. Well, thank you. That <laughs> is good, great advice to the SLPs that are listening. <laughs> Well, I think that's all I have to ask you, but we're learning so much today and we would love, if you had any extra things to add, we would love to hear them. I don't, I, you know, I, I, unfortunately for you, I could go on forever, but I think we'll leave it at that because you can't get me to stop talking about stuttering. It's one we of my passions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us today. This was super informative and I think very helpful to parents and SLPs. So we really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. And it was great meeting you, Tristan. Of course. Great to meet you as well. And thank you guys for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe so you can find our newest episodes and leave us a little rating and review. And have a great rest of your day. Mm -hmm.